African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. Well, thank you for joining us uh, on uh, this Wednesday. This is African Dialogue right here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Thank you for joining us on Shortwave. That's our shortwave service into the African continent, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. You're listening to us on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa on DSTV and South Africa and some neighboring countries. We are on uh, the DSTV audio channel, channel 802. Thank you for listening to us online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Well, uh, today we're looking at uh, the uh, problem of financial corruption on the African continent. It was in July 2003 when the African Union Convention on Preventing and Combating Corruption was adopted in uh, Maputo to fight against corruption in governments and also prevent illicit financial flows on the African continent. However, ever since a little progress is achieved to eradicate financial crime on African countries. It is estimated that the continent loses an estimated $50 million a year to illicit financial flows. South Africa has lost more than 1.5 trillion rand in illicit financial flows over a period of 10 years. Uh, This is according to the uh, country's chairperson of parliament standing committee on finance, Yunus Karim, who was uh, uh, already welcomed the gazetting of the finance Financial Intelligence Center Amendment Act, also known as the FICA bill. The legislation seeks to curb financial crime, including money laundering, and uh, really to scrutinize suspicious uh, banking transactions. Let's listen uh, at this particular context in South Africa as uh, Karim elaborates. FICA was amended to clamp down on illicit financial flows, money laundering, corruption, tax evasion and the financing of terrorism, among other things. After President Jacob Zuma signed the bill into law in April, the only thing that was left was for Finance Minister Malusi Gigaba to sign off the implementation date of the FICA Act. The implementation dates for certain parts of the Act were signed and gazetted last week, Welcoming this development, Finance Committee Chairperson Yunus Karim says the legislation will curb the loss of billions in illicit financial flows. Between 2002 and 2012, we lost $122 US billion dollars, uh, through illicit financial flows. That money that belongs to the people of this country, it needs to be used to implement service delivery. So this is a very important act. KSEG, which earlier threatened to take the president to court when there was a delay in signing the bill into law, also welcomed Gigaba's move. KSEG executive director is Lawson Naidu. And we hope that the relevant authorities will act with speed to ensure that there is effective and speedy implementation of the relevant provisions of the Act. This is a critical component of our broader national strategy against corruption, against money laundering, against the illicit flows of, of uh, funds out of the country. So this is an important part of the arsenal that South Africa will have in terms of fighting corruption. 
That is a report there by um, uh, Mercedes B Center uh, giving us an update on uh, the Sofika bill that has been implemented in uh, uh, South Africa. But we know that there's a bigger problem on the African continent. Uh, South Africa only ranks second with $122 billion lost uh, and uh, Egypt uh, third with $37 billion being lost uh, uh, as when they uh, look at the ranks within a period of a time. Now on the line we've got Leanne uh, Govansami who's uh, joining us from Corruption Watch. She's the head of legal and investigations. We also have Jurgen Gray Johnson who's from the Open Society Initiative of Southern Africa. Now thank you for joining us uh, Leanne. I know that uh, uh, Corruption Watch as a non-governmental organization has been very much on its toes especially when it comes uh, to the uh, FICA bill. Uh, I know that um, you have been requesting and indicating to even the Minister of uh, uh, South Africa, the Financial Minister, uh, to act on signing, and it's already been signed right now. Why was this particular bill important for Corruption Watch? Look, this bill is really important uh, for several reasons, right? I'll start with the um, prominent influential person. Um, and the introduction or the expansion of the definition of prominent influential person. So, so when a bank, for example, has to open a, a bank account for, for any of its clients, it has to conduct certain know-your-client procedures. It needs to vet their clients and ensure that their clients do not pose a risk in terms of being involved in fraud and corruption um, or, or even... You know, if somebody has access to money or power in the mm. private or the public sector, it's important that they be vetted accordingly and that those risks be noted. Um, and so, really, this bill introduces this new expanded definition of who an influential person is. It also creates a new risk-based approach, all designed to reduce the space for corruption and illicit financial flows to occur. Right? That's That's kind of the... The overarching objective of the bill is, is to do that, to make the net as, 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 as kind of mm. um, as small as possible, but in order to catch the right people, in order to ensure that we are focusing on those people who pose the highest risk uh, to be involved in these kinds of transactions. The well, second so, relates to... Sorry. So go ahead, sorry. go ahead, Leah. Um, the second relates to beneficial ownership. The, this is the first piece of legislation that introduces a definition of beneficial ownership. And it looks not just at who the directors of a company are, but it looks at who is exercising effective control over the company. So if somebody is trying to um, you know, hide behind several layers of companies or trusts, etc., in order to loan the money through those various uh, financial vehicles, then you are able to to really get to who the owner is or you're able to understand who the, the beneficiaries of those funds are. Um, and so those are the kinds of provisions that we've been really interested in that we've mm. been making comments on.
Well, it's very interesting that you highlight those various uh, forms of uh, uh, corruption or forms of uh, avoid, uh, uh, rather tax evasion there, Leanne. And you know what's what's interesting for me is... uh, how rife is this problem of illicit financial flows and tax evasion, especially in, in South Africa? Uh, let's look at South Africa itself because uh, this I- implementation of, of FICA has been something that's been uh, implemented right here in South Africa and seems like it's going to be a good model, maybe a good start for the rest of the continent uh, because this is not just a South African problem. It's something that's very broad on the African continent. Look, you know, if we look at the um, the, the report, the Mbeki report on illicit financial flows, mm-hmm. right? We in the top nine um, countries there um, in Africa that that have kind of the highest outflows of money, um, you know. So we listed quite highly there. Um, you know, we've been in several reports, um, U.S. reports, U- U.S. State Department reports, um, IMS reports. Uh, being flagged as one of those countries that pose a really high risk in terms of illicit financial flows because of the kind of banking systems that we do have. We have very sophisticated banking systems. We have, um, but at the same time, these banking systems are susceptible to the kinds of transactions that we've seen, to the kinds of illicit flows of money that that have been occurring. Um, You know, if we look at what's been happening are emerging out of the the, the, the the leaked Gupta emails or from the state capture report. You know, a lot of what's being said relates to money laundering as well. Mm. And, you know, you, you can see the prevalency of these kinds of issues. Um, and, and, of course, you've got the Financial Action Task Force, um, which in 2009, um, you know, as far back as 2009, has said that we're non-compliant uh, with several of their recommendations, which then led to these current um, amendments being introduced. So, you know, th- these are these are issues which are very, very, um, which are very complex, but are still very important to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the continent, you know, um, as Corruption Watch, we're a Transparency International chapter in South Africa, and we are going to try and work with other Transparency International chapters in Africa to be able to say what kind of African solution do we find um, to this problem? You know, how can we better work together mm. to monitor what our financial uh, what our financial intelligence centers are doing? Do we have the kind legislative the right kind of legislative and policy landscape to enable the reduction mm, exactly. of the outflows of money? Mm. And let me come to you, Jurgen Gray. Thank you for giving us your time. It's welcome back to African Dialogue. In terms of this big conversation of illicit financial flows, it's becoming a norm. I mean, from 2003, uh, there was an introduction of the African Union Convention on Preventing Crime and, and Combating Corruption. But it seems like since this particular time, there's little that has been done. When I look at uh, uh, the latest reports, I mean, from 2003, when this this convention was introduced to now 2012 we've seen an illicit outflow of 157 billion dollars uh, out of the country south africa ranks second with 112 billion lost dollars and uh, egypt is third with 37 billion dollars lost uh, nigeria is the worst offender of course uh, so we are seeing the fact that 
Africa is struggling uh, with uh, this uh, uh, very much uh, uh, organized, well-organized oil here of crime. Yeah, um, uh, thanks for having me on, on the program. Um, you are right. Um, the numbers are staggering. Um, you know, the opportunity cost um, to corruption actually means that uh, we are going to continue to struggle with our developmental aspirations. Um, and so as a result, um, everybody stands to, to, to lose, especially the vulnerable and the poor. Um, it's clear um, what you said earlier that uh, we've had uh, the, the, the AUC, the AUMC, the MPCC convention, which is the Africa Union Convention on um, Preventing and Combating Corruption in Africa, of which 37 countries have actually signed on to. Um, we've been tracking um, the implementation um, of this particular convention. Um, across the across the African continent, and you know it's been checked and it's been mixed um, in the sense that the biggest problem that we're finding now and the biggest contributor towards um, 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 enabling or providing an enabling um, environment for corruption to actually strive is the fact that the cost of corruption um, is not very expensive. The repercussions um, for a corrupt official um, is not very high. So the issues around um, the accountability factor of um, making sure that institutions, anti-corruption commissions, do their jobs well, to make sure they'll be able to investigate, be able to prosecute, and also be able to recover the funding. Um, it's really um, not happening to the scale that it needs to happen. So as a result, there's no deterrent. Um, we've seen that, for example, um, in certain African countries where public official um, would be um, um, would be investigated, would be um, tried, would be convicted, and actually a pronouncement of guilt would have been made to state that he was actually corrupt. Uh, we've seen it in one particular country where somebody was um, involved in uh, 27, I think it was 27 million rand illegal wow. um, wow. tenders or whatever. Wow. And uh, at the end of the day, this person was actually tried, convicted, and was given an option to pay a fine of 9,000. I mean, how does that work? So at the end of the day, it actually makes corruption um, attractive. Um, there are no fundamental repercussions moving forward to that. So that's, that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing, which I think is quite important, is the issue around political will. If we're looking at the implementation of AU normative frameworks and standards like the convention itself, it's one thing to go ahead and ratify it, and we've got 37 countries that have ratified But it's another thing to start implementing it. Um, and, and, and you're seeing that um, in some countries um, that are very serious about this. Rwanda is one. Um, we just um, launched um, a report on the effectiveness mm, of the anti-corruption yeah. mm. commission there. And it's very clear um, that some of the things that they, 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 they're not able to do everything, but they are fundamental things that they are doing to make corruption unattractive and to make the cost of corruption very expensive. So in other words, the perpetrators are weary and they start to think twice about doing um, corrupt activities. So that's the preventive mechanism. Mm. Um, basically, you stop the, the, the actual act before it starts by making sure that uh, you know the, the mechanisms are in place and you make an example out of people. Mm. So Rwanda has been very, very good at doing that. Now, and, and on the other hand, you have countries, for example, like Kenya, um, which has had um, the Ethics and Anti-Corruption um, Commission in place for very many years, mm. but it's been dismantled nine times. And the reason why it was dismantled was because every single time that commission comes across um, a highly politically explosive case that has to do with corruption, 
And often parliamentarians have been involved in this. What do the parliamentarians do? They perform their oversight role in a very negative manner by, first of all, starving the Commission of Funding um, to make sure that it is ineffective to deploy its mandate. And if that doesn't work, what they will do is they'll frustrate its work um, in its investigation. And if that doesn't work, they'll just change the entire board and dismantle the whole um, 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 institution. So we've seen, um, you know, a, a mix of the way governments have been tackling corruption or have not been tackling corruption in the African continent. And I think overall the picture is that when we fight corruption, it fights back. So the bottom line is that this is going to be a very long, hard, arduous battle moving forward. Mm, that is the voice of Jurgen Gray Johnson joining us on the line for this conversation we're having today. You can join the conversation on our Twitter handle. We're asking the question, uh, is enough done in Africa to end corruption? At Channel Africa One, that's our handle, at Channel Africa One or at African Dialogue. We want to hear your thoughts there. Give us your thoughts. We're asking, is enough done in Africa to end corruption? Get your mobile phone uh, and uh, you can go on Twitter uh, or you, near your um uh, computer screen there we want to hear your thoughts is enough done in africa to end corruption don't just tell us yes or no but we want to hear your thoughts what more can be done we see that there is now a systematic form and uh, a very much uh, a well-oiled machine as i was highlighting earlier on of corruption and we're seeing that it's highly highly organized and you're having these complex criminal rings uh, that uh, are actually creating this environment on the african continent. We also have on the line Leanne Govansami, who is the head of legal and investigations at Corruption Watch. They are very much uh, putting pressure on South African financial uh, finance minister to uh, really sign and gazette that uh, Financial Intelligence uh, Center Amendment Act, also known as the FICA bill, which uh, is aiming to curb financial crime, including money laundering, and also it aims to scrutinize suspicious banking transactions. Remember, our Twitter handles at channel africa one but african dialogue we asking is enough done in africa to end corruption uh, give us your thoughts on that particular uh, platform we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back to our guests hello and welcome to channel africa the african perspective we broadcast from johannesburg in south africa and our main aim is to provide you with news views knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective.
Indeed, this is Channel Africa giving you the African perspective. You with me, Benjamin Mushatam. I'm not alone on my program. I usually have the opportunity to speak to various guests to really help us unpack some of these big, big, complex issues on the African continent. And today we're speaking about illicit financial flows. And we have Leanne Govinsami, who is the head of legal and investigations at Corruption Watch. We also have Jurgen Gray Johnson, who's joining us on the line. He is from the Open Society Initiative of uh, Southern Africa. Coming to you, Leanne, in terms of just uh, really, really making the listener understand what we're speaking about when we're speaking about illicit financial flows. How do they actually uh, manifest these particular flows? Because it's something that we've been speaking to uh, for years right now, and it's something that it seems like in the minds of ordinary citizens, it's still a little bit complex. Look, when we're referring to illicit financial flows, right, we, we can one refer to the proceeds of crime that are leaving the country through various corporate vehicles, right? So if we think of money laundering, if somebody makes money from the sale of drugs, um, obviously, you know, <laughs> that, is, that is illegal money, mm. um, and they need to find a place, uh, one, to keep it, and two, they're trying to clean that money because they want to put it into certain bank accounts, they want to use that money, right? And there's, there's a various ways in which they can use that money. Sometimes that money is used to buy luxury goods. Let's say you want to buy a Ferrari with the proceeds of crime. Now, those who then deal with luxury goods have a duty under FICA to be able to vet the client and to ask questions about where did that money come from. If somebody comes to you with a kind of um, a suitcase full of cash, you've got to ask where it comes from. You've got to report it to the authorities as well so that that mm. transaction, which appears very suspicious, can be looked at and you can ask those questions. So that's the kind of money laundering issue. Um, in order to clean the money, it sometimes uh, passes through several corporate vehicles um, to give it a semblance of kind of legitimacy, that it's come from a business, a legitimate business. So you may be selling drugs, but you can open, um, you know, some sort of um, business for the sale of clothes, etc., and say, well, in fact, I got the money from there. And they try and hide the proceeds of crime in that way. If we look at tax evasion, um, in a similar way, you're making money in a business. It could be a legitimate business, but you want to evade the high amounts of tax that you pay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you abuse the tax rules in order to evade that tax. Now, in, in, in a big problem that we face is that there's a very big difference between tax planning for companies and tax evasion. And where do we draw the line? How do authorities detect it? Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you have mining companies, you know, they try and hide their assets and hide the money that is actually being made. Um, in order to say, look, we actually haven't made that amount of money and so we shouldn't be paying that amount of tax. And so all of these fall under the broader category of illicit financial flows. Mm. I want to come back to South Africa's uh, FICA bill because it it aims to deal with those various areas. I'm looking at some of the areas that it wants to actually look at, measures to strengthen uh, anti-money laundering and combating terrorist financing. Uh, This includes requiring identification of uh, beneficial owners to prevent natural persons from misusing legal entities. There's other areas of enhancing customer due diligence requirements 
this that we ensure that entities fully understand the nature of potential risk posed by their customers and also freezing assets related to persons associated with terrorism, safeguarding information line with protection of personal information. So it's a very much broad, this particular act itself. But uh, Leanne, in terms of looking at who will be able or be responsible to ensure that uh, the FICA bill is actually followed, who will be that power that actually utilizes the bill itself? So, so let me just get back, um, uh, you know, to the to the initial um, introduction. The one sure. the bill has been signed by the president. The minister of finance has gazetted it, but only certain sections have come into effect. Okay. The, le- okay. the rest of them have been delayed, um, and we are concerned about the delay of some very important sections. Okay. To get to the second um, a question, um, there is the, the accountable, what are known as accountable institutions in terms of the act will be uh, banking institutions because they primarily deal with, um, you know, clients who need to, ha- to move their money, let's, let's say it in that way. Lug- uh, dealers in luxury goods, like I've, I've mentioned, um, you've got, um, you know, asset management companies, mm-hmm. um, lawyers, uh, estate agents, mm-hmm. you know, those who are responsible or, or, or or have clients who are moving large amounts of money. Sure, sure. Um, you know, those are the accountable institutions. What they need to do is to have a proper compliance mechanism, a risk management compliance program, which enables them to detect those transactions that are very suspicious and report them to our financial intelligence center so that the FIC can then continue with their investigation into the matter. Um, and that's you know, a really, really important part of it. But there's also other government institutions um, which need to be involved in this process. Um, you know, um, your other guest was talking about, you know, sanctions. You know, what then happens when um, you find that somebody is engaged in money laundering? It needs to go to the, to the hawks. Um, it needs to go to those institutions that are able to prosecute and who have the kind of right um, um institutional capacity to be able to conduct those um, investigations, which can be quite complex. Mm. Let me move to you, Jurgen Gray Johnson. Definitely, we we're here in a very much complex terrain there. But I, I I really enjoy speaking to you, Jurgen and Leanne, because you are simplifying some of these particular terms. And uh, I want to move back to this uh, uh, the report that you were highlighting on earlier on. And that this is another example of how uh, you can actually uh, come up with policies or laws that actually uh, really elevate the uh, visibility of uh, transparency and also ensure that people are held accountable, Jürgen. Give us this uh, strategy from Rwanda. I know they've been legislating laws and also freezing assets of uh, uh, corrupt officials and also they have the office of the ombudsman that's playing a huge role in that country in tackling corruption. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Rwanda, we just uh, launched a report there, um, I think it was on the 14th of June, and uh, Rwanda, um, to me, it's certainly the evidence provides, and we've done this, uh, this, this, these kind of studies in 20 African countries, including South Africa, and uh, Rwanda provided the best case um, for how, how um, um, one can actually tackle corruption um, at the level of the state um, in partnership with civil society and w- with a very strong anti-corruption agency that had a very strong mandate. So Rwanda is one of the few countries um, on the African continent and certainly in the world 
that has a very wide mandate. So its ombudsman can actually um, investigate, it can arrest, um, it's got its own special policing unit there to do that, um, and also it can seize assets. Um, so, so it's got tremendous power. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, uh, the, the ombudsman also um, has got um, a mandate um, to ensure that all public officials declare their assets. The asset declaration culture is very strong to a point where in 2009, 2010, Rwanda um, actually registered 100% asset declaration. This year, um, they were up to about 90, 98%, 99% declaration of assets. Um, so as a result, um, you know, they have that very strong culture of at least the, the accountability and the transparency aspect of it. Um, added to it, um, the asset um, forfeiture and the asset seizure, um, if one is found guilty, um, is enforced. And this is really coming from the massive political will that Paul Kagame has actually shown, to a point where he has made it um, a deliberate policy to raise the cost of corruption. So the deterrent factor is extremely high. And I think uh, the, the, that was one of the big lessons that we learned um, when dealing with the Office of the Ombudsman in that country. Unlike other countries, um, so for example, the other countries that have got very strong laws on paper, very strong institutions, very strong civil society that can advocate, a very strong press that can do investigative journalism, but the mandate um, um, of combating corruption doesn't rest with one agency. It rests in some instances with three or four or five different agencies. So one begins to wonder the accountability aspects um, of these agencies uh, uh, um, sure. in actually deploying their mandate properly because you can have one, one, one agency that only has the mandate to investigate and mm. then it has to move to another agency that only has the mandate to um, basically um, prosecute. Then it goes to the next agency that only has the mandate, in other words, to use assets, if at all. So uh, as a result, um, the fight against corruption becomes fragmented and fractured. Sure. Because if there's a lack of political will in any of these different agencies or the, in any of these different departments, you could be rest assured that that's exactly where the progress is going to stop. Um, if any of these agencies have been captured or under the manipulation of criminals um, or non-state actors um, with ulterior motives, you could be rest assured that's exactly where the, pro um, the progress of that particular investigation or any investigation is going to go on. So, so as a result, I, mean, I think uh, the, the, the lesson here is that um, you know, we should look at uh, emulating the best practices. That is one. But I think standardization and harmonization of some of these policies mm. across the board in Africa is absolutely imperative because corruption is a transnational crime. Mm. Nobody steals something from one country and keeps it there. Often, more often than not, they move it around to different places. Mm. So as a result, there has to be that kind of cooperation and standardization moving forward. Leanne, do we have that capacity? Looking at South Africa uh, is a good example of a country that does have various instruments that uh, can actually fight uh, corruption but it seems those instruments are not working in sync to actually deal with this particular issue i know we can have the fika bill i know that we should hold banks accountable uh, for uh, the type of business that they involve themselves in but what is also instrumental for me is the fact that uh, we have organs of uh, uh, security uh, that really really are are not working in sync to 
to ensure that we have an environment that is actually making things more difficult uh, for uh, these illicit financial flows and uh, uh, for making sure that corruption is, is dealt with. It seems like we are a, a play field in South Africa for this type of action because of the very fact that Jürgen Gray Johnson is highlighting that we don't have a comprehensive and an in-sync kind of system that fights corruption. Look, you know, he's very right. You know, it takes all these institutions to work together. You've got to have a functioning, credible, independent criminal justice system. Um, You know, locally, um, you have to have authorities working together, um, you know, kind of internationally um, and be able to share information um, about clients, about transactions, etc. I think locally, if we look at our criminal justice system, you know, we've had issues around several bad appointments. Mm. Um, you know, if we look at the head of the Hawks, um, if we look at the 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 um, national uh, the, the national director of public prosecutions, um, you know, if we look at crime intelligence and that the, mm. the head of crime intelligence and, and that role and the, the the vacuum in that role, sure. you can see that there are several. Um, leadership positions, key leadership positions in the criminal justice system that have been compromised um, either by bad appointments, um, bad leadership, um, you know, some decisions that have been perceived to be politically biased or politically controlled uh, or influenced. um, And those have an impact on the functioning of the system as a whole. Um, But, you know, in in our experience, you know, we, we also have pockets of excellence in those institutions that do work together um, and, and, you know, those that can be relied on. Um, But ultimately, we need various government institutions from even home affairs to, um, you know, the criminal justice system to all be working together. Uh, One of the important, um, I guess, amendments to the Act was a dissolution of a kind of um, committee that had all these institutions working together. And then you ask yourself whether the anti-corruption task team, which exists already, um, can play that role in terms of working together. Um, at the moment, the, um, the, the, uh, the new regulations, which are out for public comment, they offer us an interministerial committee that will be appointed um, to handle this. And we've got in our question whether that committee will work well what is its mandate? Does it duplicate the work of the anti-corruption mm-hmm. task team? Those kinds of questions, because you want efficacy, you don't want duplication of efforts. You want an institution sure, sure. that has specific mandates. That's going to be so important for us going forward. Well, I'm going to take one more break, and then after that, we'll wrap it up in the next five minutes. Uh, what are your thoughts on this conversation? Uh, remember, we are on Twitter at Channel Africa One or at uh, African Dialogue. Give us your thoughts. Uh, Africa loses an estimated fifty billion uh, a year to illicit financial flows, and uh, uh, this is uh, very worrying. This is a year uh, that we are talking about, and uh, when you look at over a period of year, uh, maybe twenty years are know that Tabumbeki spoke about uh, uh, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that are lost uh, through these illicit financial flows. So is enough being done, in your view, uh, to make sure that this kind of corruption is ended? Give us your thoughts on those uh, uh, Twitter handles. It's 11.40. I'm going to take a quick break and I'll be back. That's 11.40 Central African Time.
Change Your Game is a program dedicated to SMEs and entrepreneurs on the African continent. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We're coming to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. It is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially young entrepreneurs on the African continent. Before we even, you know, talk about the journey, please tell me what an entrepreneurologist is. <laughs> well, that's a question that I get um, everywhere I go. Catches every Friday at 1000 hours Central African time and Saturday at 1300 hours Central African time. Change your game, empowering the next generation of outstanding African entrepreneurs. Yes, you're listening to Channel Africa. Right now, you're listening to African Dialogue. From Monday to Thursday, we bring you uh, discussions on uh, issues on the African continent. Today, we're looking at the continuing worry of illicit uh, financial flows. I know that uh, uh, there was a, a huge meeting that took place uh, uh, just recently, and I'm talking about last month or so, where African tax and audit uh, experts uh, met in Yaounde and really looking at some of this uh, very very, very pivotal issues and uh, it seems to be that African countries are battling uh, with this issue of illicit uh, financial flows. But uh, uh, we've been speaking to great guests on the line. Lian uh, Govinsami, Head of Legal Investigations at Corruption Watch. Jagan Gray at Johnson is also a member of uh, the Open Society Initiative of Southern Africa. I've got three minutes left, guys, and we've covered a whole lot of areas here. And I think that we've unpacked the central themes of uh, this conversation when it comes to illicit financial flows. But my concern is do we have that infrastructure? Do we have that manpower? Do we also have that political will, Jurgen Gray, to actually deal with these particular issues? Because we need all those three in order for us uh, to create uh, that comprehensive uh, approach that you were talking about earlier. Jurgen, are you there with me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you very clearly. Yeah. Yeah, just to conclude, just yeah, just to answer to answering your question, three, three quick things. I think uh, the biggest challenge that uh, we are facing on the continent, apart from you know um, all the other things that we talked about, um, but but the deep rooted aspect of it is um, sad to say is this cultural um, aspect and the the, the, the actual um, um, perception around corruption, um, the accept the accept acceptability of it. Um, it th- there's a trend now, um, and it's been going on for a while, but now even more so than ever, that we tend to canonize corrupt officials and turn them into saints, whilst vilifying the ones that are actually fighting the menace. And mm-hmm. you are beginning to see that um, corrupt officials, corrupt individuals, um, criminals that are involved in, um, in, 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 in serious um, cor- um, acts of corruption, corrupt activity, are actually hailed as heroes. They are, they are looked up to by young people, um, etc. And they see more or less as the Robin Hood of their, of their communities. And, uh, mm-hmm. and as a result, it makes it difficult um, to try and basically change the, the concept and also to change the mindset to state that this is simply not right and it can't be accepted. So that, that's a major challenge. And, and I think um, this has to stop. And the, the only way of doing it is basically to raise the cost of corruption for the perpetrators. That's fundamental. We need to confront impunity by seeking accountability through all these institutions that need to be strengthened. They need to be strengthened to actually deploy their mandate. We need to have adequate legislative and policy frameworks. We need to ensure that we network better. We build sound and strategic alliances. 
because as I said, corruption is transnational. It doesn't belong to only one country. It's multiple countries with one perpetrator in some instances, for instance. Um, And and so we really need to have better network, um, better alliance building. And also, this has to also be, be, be backed up by strategic and effective communication. How do we communicate? Um, as crusaders against corruption. How do we communicate with our lawmakers? How do we communicate and get feedback from these institutions that are tasked with combating corruption? And also, what are the tools that we use? And I think technology has been a wonderful way of doing this. Um, But I think, you know, these are some of the things that we need to do that must come together um, Mm -hmm. in, in, in ensuring that this happens. And then finally, 2018 is going to be a pivotal year on the African continent for, for combating corruption. Because for the first time, as civil society, together with the advisory board on corruption, we've managed to do two major things. One was to get the heads of state and government to admit that there's a problem, collectively. Not individually as different mm-hmm. states, but collectively. To say that we have a problem on the African continent, we are hemorrhaging hundreds of billions of US dollars mm-hmm. um, um, a year. We don't even know how much we have. Sure, definitely. These are just estimates. And we need to do something about it. So we got them to admit that last year. Now they need to take a step to ensure and basically make a pronouncement as to what they're going to do about it. And they have now declared that 2018 will be the year of combating corruption on the African continent. And this is a massive opportunity for state actors, for non-state actors, the private sector, um, community-based organizations, media, faith-based organizations, to come together and use this opportunity to basically engage mm, well, in a very systematic l- l- way to, to basically come out with strategies so, in combating corruption. So let me give Leanne the last uh, uh, voice here. Just in a minute or so, I've got a limited time. I need to get my business uh, reporter in here uh, to give us an update on the business. But, but Leanne, uh, just in 30 seconds, your thoughts on how Africa moves forward with this issue. It's a long-going, long-going issue. We need to come to a point where we're dealing with it on a practical level. It's about cooperation. It's about cooperation, collaboration, and pressure. Civil society organizations need to think outside of their local jurisdictions and to start thinking about how do we work with each other on a regional basis, how do we coordinate those efforts, how do we place the right pressure at the right time, um, and also be able to educate people about the importance of this issue, which is at the end of the day not as complex as, as it seems, and it has an impact on them as well. There's a direct correlation between these illicit financial flows and human rights which are not being realized on the continent. Um, so it's about cooperation amongst civil society um, and state institutions that are involved in this work and education so that people are also part of the pressure that is being placed. Mm-hmm. Um, at a regional level. Well, thank you so much to Leanne. Thank you to Jurgen. Uh, thank you both uh, for giving us your time. It's been fantastic uh, looking at uh, uh, some of uh, the important factors when it comes to the issues of illicit financial flows using South Africa and Rwanda as examples of uh, efforts that have been done to deal with the situation. Let's